I'm excited and blessed this morning. Um, as you heard, little Millie was born on Saturday. Let me read you some names. This is just preface to this uh, chapter. Uh, Levi, Adrian, Lily, Gilbert, Fraser, Penelope and Amelie or Lily, Millie. That's probably over the last couple of years or thereabouts, the little children that have joined us here. Tonight at the prayer meeting, we're going to be praying for them and the others. I think we have a, a particular responsibility to bring them before the Lord. Maybe that's just me as a grandfather, but they are precious and we shouldn't take for granted um, the responsibility that we have as a congregation, whether they're your children or not, uh, but also um, our dependence upon God because except he build the house, they will labour in vain that build it. So it's good just to reflect on that. As Mandy has mentioned, or maybe Darren mentioned it, we've been going through the book of Genesis. Genesis is a foundational book. Um, without it, pretty much... The rest of the scriptures and certainly the New Testament is a bit of an enigma. <laughs> it wouldn't make sense. Uh, it's foundational. We started with the creation. that gives us God's perspective on creation rather than the current worldview. Uh, we wanted, went on to see how man and woman were put into an idyllic garden and, um, and they chose to sin against God. And they broke fellowship with God. And then we heard about the first crime, if you like, the murder of Cain rising up against his brother. And it's downhill from there on. When we come to this chapter uh, with Noah and um, the ark and the flood, we'll be talking about that a little bit. Um, it's been nine generations since Adam and Eve, probably more than 1,500 years. Um, how many people do you think were on the earth? There are a lot. <laughs> uh, those people didn't have two and a quarter children or whatever the average is today. Uh, they would have had five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten and more. Some of them were living 300, 400, 500, 900 years. So there's various guesses but it's, it's not unreasonable to think that there could have been a billion people or more populating the earth, quite a number. And, um, and they had an opportunity over those 1,500 years to make things better. Adam and Eve started badly in the garden. They had an opportunity to uh, try and demonstrate perhaps that man was better than God said he was. They had an opportunity to try and improve things, to be fruitful and multiply. Well, they were fruitful and multiplied. There's no question about that, but not as it seems in the way that God had intended. And so we read, beginning in chapter 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. This is not a dating manual. But um, goes on to say that they took as their um, wives 
any they chose, the sons of God. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, or shall not strive with man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old. Well, what does all that mean? <laughs> um, a change is about to occur. So man has been going through these nine generations and it would seem that um, things hadn't been getting better and uh, something even more severe was happening here now. Now, there are a number of views about this particular passage here. Um, I'll tell you my view afterwards, if you like. <laughs> but um, it seems that something was happening here uh, that um, was different than before. It says that after all these generations, uh, there were daughters, women, human women, and then it says the sons of God saw them and they took them as wives. And the result of that were these beings, let's call them, called Nephilim or giants. Uh, Martin Luther translated it as tyrants. Um, and some have, have thought of these um, sons of God as actually angels. And the Nephilim were the results of a, let's call it an unholy union between the angels and the daughters of men that corrupted even further the human race. Now, I don't want, I don't want to dwell on that because um, for some that may be controversial and we're not really sure. Some have felt that the daughters of men and the sons, uh, the sons, of, sons of God and the daughters of men were just human beings and uh, the result was um, another generation of sinners, if you like. Um, I think there's a very strong case that it was more than that. But be that as it may, um, that brought the earth to a stage where it was populated now by uh, a much worse set of beings and people than even before. And it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and, listen to this, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. What started off as an idyllic situation with Adam where they lived in fellowship with God uh, they had eternal life. <laughs> they had the love and the joy that would come with that relationship uh, has now come to this, where not only has man filled the earth with violence and lust and greed, but it's gotten to the stage where it seems that they couldn't think about things that were good. Every thought, every intention was evil continually. It's good that we're not like that, isn't it? 
We don't like to think of ourselves in that particular way. We really don't. And when I, when I was younger, a little bit younger, I'm a bit older now, um, I, I really did feel that by an effort and a discipline of will that I could deal with things in my life. I think I really, really felt that. And I know that I was a sinner, that there were things in my life that were contrary to what God uh, had planned, that were contrary uh, to what was good for me, but yet I felt that with enough willpower, with enough decisiveness, I could set things right. That's not true. It's not true. And if you feel um, like I felt that without God, I can set things to right, I can direct the course of my life. I can make the choices that will ultimately lead to good and fulfilment and purpose. Well, the testimony of the scripture is that you're wrong. And although you might not have been amongst the people here whose every intention and thoughts of the heart was evil continually... God sees you that way. There is none righteous, no, not one, the scripture says. I'm sure you've heard some of these things before. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All we, all we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The difficulty is for that to come from the head to the heart. The difficulty is to come to a place where I really believe that in me, as Paul said, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. For me to really believe that as sheep, (laughs) I've turned to my own way. Well, that's perhaps not a hard thing to believe. We all turn on our own way. But to come to believe that even the right things I do, the scriptures say, are like filthy rags. Now, when I do something good, I'm I'm not hoping for someone to uh, comment about how filthy that work was. (laughs) I like to think that it's something that is um, of benefit something that I've done that is right. And we can do things that are outwardly good, but ultimately our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Do you believe that? I find it hard to believe, frankly, quite often, that my heart is such a state that it could be described in this way, that the thoughts of the heart was evil continually. Without God, we have no hope and we have no help. You can grit your teeth and say, well, I I can do good without God. But as you get older, gritting your teeth gets harder. Well, they get more brittle anyway. 
so gritting them may cause a problem. But you, you grit your teeth and you find, well, I've failed so many times. I have tried without God. And these people had gotten to a state where they had given up trying without God. <laughs> there had been some we had seen who had actually walked with God. We read about Enoch and heard about Enoch last week. He walked with God. So there, were, there was an opportunity. There was an invitation, if you like. There was a chance for any of these individuals, even though they were fallen individuals, even though they were individuals who had carried the seed of Adam and Eve, had the seed of sin, there was still, in God's grace, an opportunity for them to choose to walk with God. Enoch was one of those. But by and large, the testimony we come to here is that that was not the choice of mankind. And whether there was this additional corruption because of the Nephilim being born and infiltrating, if you like, the human race, uh, it really matters not. What matters is that these people and we today are in exactly the same state. It's interesting to note, Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, and the flood came. I find it almost amusing, maybe amusing is not the right word, that our age, our, our age today, the prevailing view is that man is basically good. Now, not everybody will say it quite in those words, but that pervades all the thinking. So when something goes wrong in a person's life, there's always a reason for it other than uh, sinners. You know, it was my parents <laughs> that did it. Or it was the environment I placed, was placed in. Or I didn't have enough money. Or I had too much money. Most people don't complain about that. There's always some reason other than the sin in the heart. And it even pervades the way we see our children raised. You know, they're basically good. Whenever they do anything wrong, it's because they didn't get enough sleep, which is probably partly true, or um, the parents didn't get enough sleep, or, um, you know, they were um, insulted or they were bullied, or their brothers or siblings were not kind to them. I'm not saying these things don't have an impact on the way children behave, but we're always prone to think that the reason that this behaviour comes out is because something else. And as parents, of course, we love our children. We often uh, think of them as perfect little beings, except when they don't sleep at night. But the, the reality is that the seed of sin is in all of us. Wherefore, one by one man, it says, sin entered the world and death by sin. For all have sinned. All of us. And yet that's the view. 
it's getting better all the time, <laughs> as the Beatles song put it. It's going to get better all the time. Well, it's not getting better all the time. It didn't get better here. Jesus didn't see it that way. What was it that was on his heart when he came into the world? What was it that was of concern? What was the problem he was seeking to fix? For the Jewish people, they were expecting that deliverance was what the Messiah was there to bring. But not deliverance from sin, deliverance from Rome, from the yoke and the oppression, which was harsh and difficult. So, of course, they were seeking someone to get them out from underneath that. And yet when Jesus came, that wasn't his priority at all. You remember the story of the paralytic who was lowered through the rooftop to get Jesus to heal this man. He couldn't walk. Worse than me. And you remember what Jesus did when they brought him there to be healed. Before he healed the man, before he dealt with that felt need, if you like. And I guess if you've been crippled a good part of your life, that's a, a real trauma, isn't it? But before he addressed that, his priority was seeing their faith. My son, your sins be forgiven you. We really do need our minds recalibrated. It's good to pray for health. It's good to pray for needs. It's good to pray for uh, um, all the things that we perceive are necessary, even in the running of this church and this congregation, in our family life. All of those things are good to pray for. But the priority, the thing that we really need is the deliverance and that's deliverance not from sickness, although we do pray for that, and we can. It's deliverance not from a nasty boss. It's not deliverance from unemployment. Or even deliverance from loneliness, which is a hard thing. It's deliverance from this sin, seed of sin in the heart. Because by sin, that's what brought the tragedy. That's what brings all those other consequences. That's what brings death. And I think when we look at this passage, when we start to see God's response to this, it just helps recalibrate our thinking so that we start to think a little more as to what God thinks on this matter. Son, your sins are forgiven. And of course he did go and heal at that stage. You know, when you get, look back at history, especially for those that sort of feel we're, we're basically okay, we're good creatures, us men and women, World War II, 75 to 80 million 
people were killed. That, that's kind of, you know, that number is almost meaningless, isn't it? It's beyond comprehension. Four times the population of Australia. In Mao Tung's great leap forward back in 1918, uh, it's estimated, and, and they don't really know, 45, 50, 60, maybe more, million deaths from famine and political persecution. The numbers are just mind-boggling. This is man who is basically good. <laughs> We're not so. Stalin in Russia, USSR, they don't know the numbers. Could have been 20, 40, 60 million people that were killed. It's interesting here, one of the sins that is described specifically in verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And it was filled with lust. We already seen polygamy had entered the scene. The hint here in, in the first five verses was that there were elements of a sexual nature as well. It's interesting, we read in uh, Jude, verses 6 to 7, and I think this relates to this passage, but you might like to read it at some stage and, and decide for yourself, but it says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Whether it's those angels that were referred to or some people think are referred to here as the sons of God, which I think it may be, um, or something else, there's this whole sin of sexual immorality, unnatural desire. And these things, violence and the immorality, has just pervaded us, hasn't it? As soon as God's constraint is not there, that's where we go. And it is not good. When God created the heavens and the earth, remember, he made that statement that it was good. And when he came to the end, he looked at what he had made and it was very good. And now we've come to a stage where we have so messed things up that it's very bad. <laughs> and really, it's, it's true, isn't it? Whether you're a believer or not, you can't really look at what is around us and feel somehow things are getting better all the time. You can't feel that somehow man is doing good. We don't naturally look on the things of others. We naturally fulfil our own desire. And so it was at this time. Sin is pervasive. It's real. But more than that, it's not just sin in the world, it's me. And until 
until I, as an individual, recognise that the fault lives in me, that I have sinned against God, until I come to that place, there is no hope. There's no salvation. That's very, very clear. When Jesus came and spoke to the Pharisees, his condemnation of them was that they didn't realise or recognise their own sickness. It's the sick that are in need of a physician. And if I don't feel that I have any sickness, I won't seek the physician. And if I don't feel that I really am corrupt, that my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, I won't seek a saviour. I'll fix it myself. Why would I need someone else? I can stand on my own two feet. But when we start to see the failure in our own hearts, when we become desperate, and God is good, isn't he? God often brings us to a place of desperation and he gives us a little glimpse of our own hearts. Thankfully, he doesn't reveal exactly what they're like in one hit because we'd be traumatic (laughs) heaps of, of nothing. He, he, he reveals a glimpse and we start to see, yeah, I am, I am so dependent upon God. I am so indebted to him for what he's done. And my love for him is a love that responds in gratitude to that that he's done. So what was the consequence of all these things? of every intention of the thoughts of his heart being evil continually. It says that God was going to destroy mankind. You think that's pretty tough, isn't it? (laughs) It's going to wipe out the whole lot, maybe billions. And I've thought of that. Um, And I guess often we see something that happens and we think God is severe, isn't he? Hell seems severe, doesn't it? But that's only because we don't see the intensity and the sinfulness of sin. God had to do something about what was going on. He had to deal with it. Firstly, he's just, he's holy, he's right. And we all want justice, don't we? Well, we especially want justice for other people (laughs) when they've wronged us. We're not always keen for justice in our own lives. But without it, it would be hell on earth. Well, in some places it is hell on earth. So God is going to deal with this and it teaches us something. Here we see, graphically illustrated, in in a true circumstance, that sin inevitably leads to judgment. It always does. It always must. I have determined to make an end of all flesh. He says, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven is. Everything that is on the earth shall die. 
inevitable. Our sin will be judged. Their sin was going to be judged. Our sin will be judged. It's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. I might not like it. I might not even believe it. But that's what God's determined. The wages of sin is death. There's another part to that verse, of course. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, sin inevitably leads to judgment. Sin will be paid for. It must be paid for. The hope that we have as believers today is that Christ has paid for that sin. Christ has given us hope because he once suffered for sins that he might bring us to God. All sin must be judged. It's either judged and I pay the consequence or I trust Jesus Christ who on the cross bore the judgment and penalty of my sin. If we ever feel a sense that maybe God will excuse sin or it doesn't matter so much to him, then we only have to have a look at something like this where he is prepared to destroy all the flesh. Or we only have to look at another place on the cross where he was prepared to judge and to, to put his own son on the tree to bear our sins. If ever there was a time when God was going to excuse sin or minimise it or set it aside, it would surely have been on the cross. That would have been the time. But he didn't. And Christ bore that sin, he bore it to extinction. Well, this is not just a story about judgment. It's not just a story about devastation. <laughs> it's not just a story about um, <clears throat> the destruction of all flesh. There is one man called Noah, and he found favour. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he and his family, his three sons and their wives, and Noah's wife, Mrs. Noah, <laughs> they were saved. Were they the only ones that had the opportunity? I don't believe so. Now, it suggests that there were 120 years in uh, verse 3, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Um, some people think of that as, well, you know, it's to do with a lifespan. I actually don't think so when I look at the context. This was about that, that was that, that um, event of man beginning to multiply uh, in the beginning of chapter 6 was 120 years before the flood. It's before Noah's sons were born. 
he would have been about 480 years, young, young sprightly man. <laughs> I guess some parents have to wait a while to have children, don't they? Noah was 500 years old before he had his, so <laughs> he had to wait. But God gave people the opportunity. See, Noah was a man, no different to us. What was distinctive about it? Was it that God showed favourites towards Noah? Did he favour Noah? Did Noah find grace in, in God's eyes because he sort of thought, I like this guy over here, so I'm going to favour him? That's not, that's not the way God works. God is not partial. There was something in Noah. And you know what it was? Was Noah's heart better than the hearts of the others around him? I don't think so. Hearts desperately wicked. So what was it? Hebrews 11 tells us that Noah was a man of faith. Listen to this very carefully. There's only one way, there's only one way that we can be right before God. And that is to put our trust in the God who can make us right. Let me say that again, or in a phrase that you might be more familiar with. Herein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, or as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. Noah was a man of faith. Adam wasn't. What was Adam's sin? Well, you know, they took the fruit, didn't they, when they were not supposed to take it. They disobeyed God. But what was at the root of the disobedience? At the root of the disobedience was a willingness to hear a whisper that said, Has God said? Surely God didn't mean this. You can't really trust him. See, this is at the heart of our sin. You trusted a lot of things coming into church today. If you were driving a car, you trusted that the engineers knew what they were doing when they constructed the jolly thing. <laughs> if you're crossing the roads with the lights changing, you were, you were trusting that you know all the signals and that, and people were going to do what the signals say, and it all works, etc. We trust because it's beyond us, and we all have to trust something. God wants us to lift our eyes and recognise ultimately we should be trusting him. He's the sovereign Lord. The disobedience was really a consequence of not willing to trust God. Abraham was a man of, firstly, faith. Now, he was a man of obedience, there's no question. But he wasn't a man of obedience first. 
He was a man who trusted God. It's like the two sides of the coin, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you look at one side and it says obedience and you turn it over <laughs> and it says faith. The two are inseparable. When Adam disobeyed God, it's because he didn't trust God. When I disobey God, it's because I don't trust him. I know better. So Noah was a man who found favour in God's eyes. He found favour in God's eyes. He found grace in the sight of God because he was a man of faith. He believed God. Oh, that was evident. He was prepared to build this ark. And it probably took, who knows, 50, 60, 70 years. We don't know the exact time. It would have been quite a while. Because uh, the flood actually came when he was 600 years old. His children were born when he was 500 years old. They had to grow up and get married. I don't know what marriage, marriageable age was then. Probably about 300. <laughs> I don't know, maybe younger. But it, would have, would have, it was a while. And Noah was prepared to go through this major construction project in order to do what God said. Now, I want this slide up here. Can you do this, do this slide? This is just an interlude. We live in an age when the, the, the flood and Noah and many of the Old Testament stories are minimised and criticised and made fun of. And even, there are even Christians and churches who will dismiss some of these histories and say, well, they're just a, uh, an allegory, they're just a story. Jesus didn't think so. You know, when you ask me, why do I believe <laughs> Noah and the flood and the ark were real events in history? I'll tell you why. Matthew 24, 38. As in those days, before the flood, Jesus speaking, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man. Wow. So you have a choice, don't you? You're either going to trust the judgment and the, the great insights of the professors <laughs> or you're going to trust in the words of Jesus. He believed it. He believed, by the way, and Adam and Eve were two people. <laughs> he believed that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. He reiterated all these things. But one of the criticisms, sorry, we'll put that, is that one up there? Put that back up there. Well, one of the criticisms is that you could never fit in all the animals. So I just thought I'd show you this picture because we often miss this. That's our property there. Well, actually, yes, and the school. Can you recognise that? 
that white line is kind of probably the minimum size. It was possibly bigger because we don't quite know how big a cubit was. The cubit was sort of from the tip of the, tip of the finger to the elbow, about 18 inches for those people that know inches, maybe half a metre. Um, in, in some places it was longer. So you see, it pretty much takes in, well, easily our church, the whole car park and a number of houses there. 18,000 tonnes capacity, if you do the sums. I'm an engineer, so I like sums. <laughs> at least. So if you, if you look at how much... Uh, a volume like that would be able to carry how much it could be loaded without sinking. 18,000 tonnes would bring it maybe to a third of the height. Three decks. Uh, you could estimate um, probably around equivalent of 20,000 sheep could fit into that. How many animals were there? Well, of course, you didn't need to put in all the sea animals, the creatures. It was those that were living on the land. Um, it's hard to get exact numbers, but uh, the literature seems to indicate there are about 34,000 species of land animals, and that's not necessarily the kinds. So the kinds that were there in the Old Testament were, I guess, the progenitors of some of these other animals. So, you know, they wouldn't have had to have chihuahuas and Great Danes and poodles and all of those things. They just have a dog kind because all the genetic material was there to actually produce all of those others. So, they're only guesses, but probably around 40, 1,400 kinds. So, uh, so, there would have been on the ark Maybe something like about 10,000 animals. Right. It's more than enough. In fact, um, if you look at the capacity of it, uh, it with 10,000 animals, uh, it allows about 1.8 tonnes per animal. Now, the average weight of the sort of land animals, again, it varies a bit, but most of them are pretty small. Average weight's probably about two kilograms, three kilograms, something like that. And they wouldn't have been bringing in, you know, full-grown animals. Some of this is speculative, I know. You can take that down now. But I guess what I want you to see is that this uh, is perfectly plausible. This is not a fairy tale. This is what God did. Unusual? Absolutely. <laughs> he won't do it again. He said that later. But did he do it? He did. Did Noah and his family get delivered? They did. How did they get delivered? By the grace of God, because of the faith of this man. No difference than today. Their deliverance was temporary. Well, it was for their lifetime. 
The earth was destroyed. Noah and his family were saved. And yet when you get to the end in chapter 8, we, we haven't got there yet, but you find that nothing has changed really as man multiplied. He says, God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man in chapter 8, verse 21. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The ark was a means where God delivered Noah and his family from a hell on earth. <laughs> but that was not sufficient. They still carried the seed of sin. Their hearts were still deceitful and desperately wicked. Their offspring were going to continue to sin. There's another ark, another wooden thing called a cross where the sin was dealt once and for all. And you know, there's no difference in the way that we're delivered back then or today. Noah was delivered, why? Because of faith. Because he trusted God. He believed that God knew better than he did. It's no different today. Our salvation today, our eternal salvation, our deliverance from not only a flood, not only from this present evil age, but our deliverance for eternity, our deliverance from sin, is by faith. What does that mean? It means that deliverance comes not because of something that I do, but it's because of someone that I trust. I'm saying, Lord, I actually believe that you know better than me. I actually accept your judgment and assessment of my heart. I'm prepared to acknowledge and recognise that my sin and my evil is my own doing my own choice. I'm guilty. It's my fault. That's trusting God. We call it repentance, but it's all part and parcel of the same thing. Because repentance comes when I'm prepared to take God at his word. It's easy, isn't it? A child can do it, but some of our professors, it seems, can't. The sinners and the harlots and the tax gatherers could do it, but it seems the Pharisees couldn't. Because the deliverance didn't come because of what they had done. The deliverance didn't come because of the, uh, the, the level of your sin. <laughs> You're a little bit less sinful, so I can fix you, but... You're a no-hoper. No, the deliverance came because of the willingness of the heart to seek the physician. And the Pharisees, not all of them, but many of them, most of them, were not willing to do that. They were not willing to say, it's me. The problem is in me, in my pride. Oh, Lord, 
I thank you that I am not as other men are, like this tax gatherer here. I do all the right things and I tithe and I'm such a good person. And that tax collector was beating his breast and he says, Lord, forgive me. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's called faith. That's called trust in God. And let me close with one little additional thought. Where does that faith come from? Where does that trust come from? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let me say this. I, I read this statistic and I don't know if it's true. You know, 95% of statistics are made up on the spot, aren't they? But I can believe that it's something like this. I, I, I read that it's estimated that something like 5% of believers have read the Bible. Now, I'm not going to ask you to put up your hand and ask whether you've read the Bible. And God doesn't save us on the basis of how much reading we do, right? But let, let me just give you this to think about. If faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, if I really believe that, won't I want to invest time here? Won't I want to spend time here? And there are people here that will help you if you want to be able to do that. See, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And when that faith comes, it comes life and deliverance and blessing that God wants for all of us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, none of us have any basis on which to stand before you. Just as Noah didn't have his sons, but Noah found grace in your eyes. And we're thankful that we can find grace in your eyes because of the cross of Christ, because of the hope that we have in Jesus, an eternal hope, an inheritance reserved for us in heaven, kept, Lord, undefiled, indestructible, unfading. And we're so thankful for that, Lord, and we... Just uh, acknowledge your goodness to us and your grace to us and pray that we might learn to trust, simply trust you. Simply believe what you say and we trust that you would work in our hearts that which is pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.